Welcome to Founder Radio. I'm your host, Hugo. In this podcast, you'll hear in-depth conversations with the globe's most exciting company founders. We'll talk about their ideas, their successes, their challenges, and their learnings along the way. At Founder Radio, we celebrate founders. And we believe that innovative founders are critical to deal with the challenges humans face. They are society's explorers and work in uncertainty to expand our practical knowledge each and every day. Building something from scratch requires creativity, intelligence, conviction, and endurance. Get inspired and learn from those that are changing the world. All right. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening in to Founder Radio. Today's a very exciting episode. We have Jacqueline van der Ende here. Jacqueline is the founder and CEO of Carbon Equity. Carbon Equity is an investment platform that focuses on funds and also businesses with a positive climate impact. It's open for consumers. You can start investing from 10,000 euros up to, uh, to much more. Before that, Jacqueline was a, a partner at Peak Capital, which is a European early stage VC based in Amsterdam. She spent more than five years in the Philippines as a founder and CEO of Lamudi and uh, grew that from zero people to a team of over 100. Really impressive. We'd love to talk a bit more about that, Jacqueline. And also CEO of True Money in the Philippines, a B2C financial services provider. Before that, Jacqueline started a career in private equity, a company called Hall, and she has a degree of uh, Utrecht University. Jacqueline, welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start with the, the very basics. In your own words, what does carbon equity do? <laughs> That's never that simple. But uh, yeah, carbon equity helps individuals invest in breakthrough climate technology companies. And rather than investing in a single company, you invest with some of the world's best climate investing experts through so-called climate venture capital and private equity funds. All right, that's crystal clear. Thank yeah. you. And um, <laughs> you're, you're not selling swimming pools or selling hamburgers. It's a very much a purpose-driven investment fund. And uh, you've already talked about a little bit about like how you came to realize that climate change is a huge challenge for mm-hmm. us as a, as a species. Could you elaborate a bit more about the insights and the facts that, that not only made clear that it was a problem, but potentially mm-hmm. one of the biggest challenges that we face? Yeah, for me, the pivotal insight came when I read the book, The Sixth Extinction. And The Sixth Extinction is written by Elizabeth Colbert, and she studied the five great extinction events in the history of the planet, amongst others, the extinction of the dinosaurs. And what is super interesting is that in all of the major extinction events in the past, climate change was the main driver of extinction. So in the case of the dinosaurs, You had the crash of the meteor, which created a ton of dust in the atmosphere, which then dramatically changed the climate. But what is also interesting is that all of these cataclysmic historical climate change events have played out over thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. And what is fascinating about the moment that we live in right now, which is the sixth extinction, is that those climate change and biodiversity events are happening in a scale of decades. Since the Industrial Revolution, less than 300 years ago, the climate has never changed this rapidly. So the speed of biodiversity loss, 
70% biodiversity loss since 1970 is just jaw-droppingly scary. And the speed of climate change is unprecedented in the history of the Earth, such that it is visible for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is could not be more tangible how rapidly our climate is changing. Chuckley, when you yeah. say climate, do you, do you look at the very simple metric of temperature or are there other things that you look at or that they talked about in the book Six Extinction? No, it's it's more complex than purely carbon in the atmosphere or parts per million, which mm-hmm. is sort of like the main metric that we're looking at. But we're also talking about greenhouse gases, obviously at large. So carbon is one of the greenhouse gases, but there's also methane, for example, which comes from gas and gas leaks, which is much more powerful than carbon, mm-hmm. uh, but also fluor. And so there's a whole bunch of uh, greenhouse gases, all of which are terrible. So it's not just a carbon problem. And secondly, it's not only a temperature problem. So the temperature is rising, but we're also seeing much more carbon being absorbed into the ocean. So we're dealing with ocean ocean acidification. Ocean acidification in itself also results in biodiversity loss. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about the system here, the whole global ecosystem. And that is very sort of foundational in our thinking. Human has felt very detached from the rest of the planet, sort of as if we're the species which is separate from our environment. But in fact, we're one of these species in an incredibly complex environment. And all of the environment is changing because of the impact of humankind. And all kinds of ecosystems are starting to collapse. Perhaps this is a bit uh, dark it's for Friday morning, but if we, <laughs> yes. uh, but I want to, I want to yeah. get darker. Like if we, and I love doing pre-mortems. I'm not sure if you're yeah. f- familiar with those, but you basically assume that a certain outcome is bad, and then you work your way through from what went wrong with the purpose of not doing those things. So yeah. if if we take this and if we assume that humankind will become extinct, say 30 yeah. years from now. Could you walk us through maybe, say, blocks of five or whatever works best, but what will happen on the way to that event? Oof, that is a really interesting and also tough question. One of the things that I see happening prior to the last person drowning or dying of lack of freshwater resources or simply because of heat. (laughs) I think before that, I would expect the world and civilization to go through a very turbulent time. Mm -hmm. And one of the great ways that we can sort of predict the future is by learning history. And a era that I find myself very fascinating is the Mayan civilization. There's this book called The Fall of Great Civilizations, I think. And I was uh, last year I was in uh, Mexico for a wedding. And my wife and I, we drove 10 hours along the Mayan temples. And we listened to this Fall of Civilizations podcast. And what's really interesting is that the civilization, the Mayan civilization fell way before the Spanish came. So the, the Spanish came in the 14th or 15th century and basically murdered a lot of the Mayans. But before that, the Mayan empire had already collapsed because of climate change. 
So basically what happened was that this Mayan civilization was very successful and started to exhaust the arable lands around the Mayan civilization. So you started to get acidification over farming, landslides because of deforestation. Mm-hmm. And so you started to get scarcity. And that scarcity led to civil unrest. And what happened is that the Mayan empire got pulled apart by competing factions that started to war on each other. And for me, I would say, if we're a bit of a doom, doom, (laughs) in a doom thinking Friday morning, that that is actually somewhat what we're seeing. We're seeing increased polarization. I would say we're starting to see the opposite of progress. I would say we're starting to see more and more conservative thinking. We're starting to see topics such as LGBTQI uh, rights, which were previously very accepted, abortion for women, female emancipation start to reverse. So my thesis is in times of progress, we become more progressive, we become Mm -hmm. more open-minded, we understand that we can share the cake with more people. But the moment that things start to go downhill, we start to become more inward. And there's a great writer, Roxana van Ypres in Lelles, he calls this term eigen welzijn eerst, my my interest first. And I feel that is what is starting to happen. And so for me, one of the worst case scenarios is that we basically see a societal implosion before climate change really kills us all, where people start to war scarce resources. And those resources are going to be scarce. So we already see climate impact on food supplies and food prices. So by 2050, at the rate we're going, 30% of populated inhabited land will not be livable anymore. That is massive. And we're going to see huge shortages of food is one of the predictions. And then secondly, huge amounts of migration. I mean, this whole migration debate where there are so many people trying to cross the Mediterranean or get into Europe and Europe's thinking like, how do we keep those people out of there? For me, this is a senseless discussion because this is the tip of the iceberg. So we need to be rethinking because there's no way you can build a border around Europe and sort of keep all these people out. Mm -hmm. So we really need to rethink migration because we're going to have a lot of it. There are going to be billions of people looking for a place where they can live. So all of this is going to create a ton of anxiety and social unrest paired with a lot of like very intense natural disasters. So we're trying to avoid this situation, which is why I do what I do. <laughs> let's yeah. um, let's turn this around and, and take the yeah. other scenario, like the best case scenario. Yeah. Let's say mm. we're able as a species to avoid all of these disasters 30 yeah. years from now and we'll thrive, we'll do better. What yeah. needs to happen for us to do that? Yeah, step one is we should really phase out fossil fuels as fast as we possibly can. And that's not going to be painless, right? Because fossil fuels are an insane energy source. There's this awesome podcast called The Great Simplification, which they explain sort of like the history of energy. And he explains like in prehistoric times, we had our own sort of energy, our muscle energy, basically. And we consume more or less the same amount of energy that we actually needed for our exercise. And then humans started to invent tools tools gave us the ability to store excess energy. 
So we started to have surplus energy, which then led to specialization and uh, modern civilization. And then we discovered fossil fuels. And fossil fuels are sunlight stored in biomass in the crust of Earth over billions of years. And basically, that's a huge fucking bank account. And we're depleting the bank accounts, like at a speed that is unparalleled. We're consuming energy from stored in our planet at 10 million times the rate as is being replenished. So <laughs> so that is really important to understand. Mm -hmm. We're living on way too big a foot. Does like, it not run out automatically in that case? And, and when does it that will. happen? It will, but not within a time period. We will already have killed all life on, a, on the planet if we consume all of the fossil fuels on Earth. But those will run out at some point, as any material will run out at some point. So the lifestyle that we have is entirely unsustainable. But that means that we've had decades of cheap energy. And if you look at Europe and US, we also became insanely wealthy, right? We have superpowers that people in the Middle Ages could never have imagined. And the lifestyles that we live, flying from New York to Amsterdam or wherever, you know, they, we can consume stuff from all around the world, etc. That is not sustainable. So what do we need to do? We need to get off fossil fuels, but it's going to cause pain. Because there is no energy source that is as... Uh, there are energy sources that are more cheap. There are no energy sources that are as compact, mm -hmm. that store that much energy in such a, a small size, in fact. There are no energy sources that we can store and transport the way that we do with fossil fuels. So there are going to be major economic disruptions. But what I would really like to see is that we somehow, and this is going to sound naive and it probably is very naive, but I feel we need to bite the bullets. Like the way that COVID sort of stopped life overnight and it was painful, right? Mm -hmm. It was painful for a lot of people. I think we need to, with sort of shock effects, really wean ourselves off fossil fuels by really shutting it down or coming up with really aggressive carbon pricing because carbon in our atmosphere is cumulative. So Every extra gallon of oil that we're burning is contributing to this problem. So we need to stop fossil fuels. I think that requires a lot of public pressure. Mm -hmm. I think it requires a ton of investment in the alternative, which I'm trying to facilitate with carbon equity. Mm -hmm. It requires politicians. It requires politics to start pricing carbon and get serious on and making the transition through regulation, through setting building standards, which require energy efficiency and a hardcore pricing incentive on carbon versus clean energy. And it requires leadership because we really need to rely on the CEOs of companies such as Shell to do the right thing because we don't have time for the next generation to fix it. It's really the people who are in charge right now will have to do the right thing. So we really need a degree of personal responsibility at the level of top CEOs, but also at the level of us as individuals where it is all too easy to say, well, I'm going to get on the plane because the plane is going to go anyway. So my impact is none. What can I do? I can't do anything. And so I strongly believe in sort of this sense of individual responsibility. And is this one of the these problems where it's phasing out fossil fuels in terms of what we can do and then there's nothing for a very long time and then there's other things or are there other areas of life that we should change in order to avoid climate change from getting out of hand? 
No, basically the complexity of this is it's more or less everything that we do has a greenhouse gas effect. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a great book to understand this better, which is How to Avoid a Climate Crisis by Bill Gates. And he really breaks it down very neatly and sort of what are the key contributors. So he basically breaks it down into six sort of areas. One is agro-food. So the way that we eat, we, our diet is very dependent on livestock and cows are a major source of methane. But also we have chopped down a lot of woods to use land and cow feed is extremely inefficient, right? So we need a lot of land for that. So we need a plant-based revolution. We need to stop eating uh, livestock. Buildings, how are we heating and cooling our buildings? That's primarily in electricity and energy kind of thing. Heavy industry. So electrification is not the only thing. We also are burning fossil fuels for heat. So there is agri-food, mobility, built environment, industry, energy and energy storage and carbon capture and storage. Because even if we stop today with emitting carbon emissions, we will have to extract them from the atmosphere. So we'll actually have to capture carbon and store it in some way. So it's everything all at once. And beyond that, it's also a rethinking of how we think about our economy because our whole economy is wired for growth. But as they explain in the Great Simplification podcast, even if you were to grow 2%, 1%, 5% every year, you will at some point hit the boundary, planetary boundaries. Like, I mean, <laughs> so there is a point where the atmosphere cannot absorb any more carbon, where the ocean is so acidic that there's no life in it anymore. So I think we also really do need to rethink growth and how we're measuring success. Got it. And you've mentioned a lot of things we can do, but also that it will inflict pain and that we'll have to change our lifestyle. How do you think about the effectivity of everything we can do? And for example, I'm thinking about prevention versus carbon capture as an example. If you think of all the different things we can do and think of sort of the unit of pain inflicted (laughs) on humankind, like where should we put our units of pain to work? I think the first one is in accepting a lower level of abundance. I'm born in 1984. You? Are you an 80s baby? Oh, yeah, exactly. 80s kids. We grew up in an era of expansion, I think. You know, everything went up. Our parents made more than their their parents' generation, etc. So it was sort of a growth era. And... I still, when I was a student, would fly on EasyJet to Barcelona, etc. You would consume whatever, and you didn't really have to think about these things. And now we really need to start thinking about our choices. And my ask is not that we entirely stop flying, because I also think we need to be pragmatic or that we entirely stop eating food, but that we make more conscious choices. Mm-hmm. I think if we were all to make more conscious choices and realize that what our individual actions are not futile, then we would already really make a pretty good step. If you think about Corona and the gas price crisis, I think we reduced our gas usage at consumer level by 30 or 40%. Yes, we can, right? But everybody needs to do their part. It's an insane example, right? Of what we're capable of. We are capable. Yes. And how much pain did we have? I mean... Sure, we're sitting at home under like thick blankets, but that's, you know, how much pain is that? So we just really need a willingness to accept the level of pain, given that in obviously in the Western world, we already have a very high standard of living. Now, it's a whole different picture for people living in India 
or the Philippines where I lived for a long time, where they still really live a substandard lifestyle. I mean, they have no money, no means, etc. And Western people have been able to benefit from a huge growth of prosperity in part because of fossil fuels. And so how do we help these people improve their life standards through industrialization that is not fossil fuel dependent? I think that would be, because the pain for these people will be much bigger. The pain will be yet bigger if we don't stop climate change because mm-hmm. Pakistan is flooding. All these people, the most vulnerable people in the world are the biggest victims of climate change. And they have no buffer. You know, we have a buffer. Like if our house in Maastricht is flooded, okay, yeah, maybe have insurance or maybe have a financial buffer. We have a buffer. But these people have no buffer. It's game over for them. So what we need to be thinking about is equitable transition as well. So how do we wean off fossil fuels, but also how do we make sure that those people who are most vulnerable are protected whilst those people who actually have a buffer can accept a higher level of pain, I think. How would you do that coordination? Like in general, I'd say humankind is not great at first at thinking ahead for 30 years and then also coordinating like as a global society. I think we've both done UN simulations a long yes. time ago. Uh, <laughs> yes. So we got a taste of that. Um, how not would you great. do that? <laughs> not a great taste. <laughs> the reason why we're both not in the UN. <laughs> oh my God, how do you do that? Yikes. I think the most effective thing is visionary leadership. I do think that we need somebody to inspire other people to follow because if you're purely reasoning from self-interest, it becomes really hard. So I think we somehow need maybe the US president or somebody who stands up and, and basically has an inspiring vision that we can run towards of the world that might be better after climate change, right? So. The thing is, much of the narrative that we are discussing is about the tragedy and the problems and also trying to save what we can save, the all we can save narrative. But people are not inspired by saving the status quo. Often we don't realize our status quo until it's gone. So somebody needs to be painting a picture, sort of a man on the, I call this a man on the moon vision, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. The US was never as motivated as when mm-hmm. they were putting a man on the moon moment. Mm-hmm. And that was a great moment of national pride and everybody was sprinting towards that goal. Now we need to paint a picture of what a fossil free carbon neutral world of abundance can look like and not just abundance but also balance with nature and then sprint towards that better future i think that will be one of the tools in, in getting there how would you do that what what, <laughs> what what i mean that's a tough question but what what does that vision oh, look like and how would you you know get people along get people excited what, what do you have in mind in terms of a man of the moon vision It's a really hard question. I think I'm still trying to look for that answer because I think it's an important answer. But for example, look at a city of Amsterdam where we live in a green, clean city, clean actually, between parentheses. Apparently our air quality is not at all clean, but people can bike everywhere to work. People play around. We have a beautiful balance between playgrounds and nature and a beautiful city. Now look at Manila. In Manila, you can drive approximately four to six kilometers per hour with your car because the country is four to six. Yes. So something that could take you 10 minutes without traffic might take you literally one and a half hours or more. 
So I would say the vision that I would like to, and this is a simple one, but with clean electricity, electrification of transport cities in which we don't sit in cars to commute forever, but have much closer work, life, entertainment areas. So we operate within smaller scales. We produce and consume more local. So we are not eating kiwis from New Zealand, etc. So we have less abundance, but better quality. We have no exhaust fumes. 50 million people a year die of air pollution. And it's much more than Corona. So we don't have those losses. And we live in a more balanced society with less extremes of rich and poor. And we have more time. This is also where thinking about basic income comes mm-hmm. in, artificial intelligence, which ultimately will replace a lot of jobs, but can at the same time potentially create a lot of wealth. And if that wealth is not concentrated with very few, but distributed for things such as basic income, we could have potentially smaller, but happier lives, less, but greater quality, more balance. I think that is a something to strive for a vision that I personally would have in my mind. That sounds pretty appealing to me. Have you (laughs) visited any cities that have completely blocked cars out of their city center? An example that comes to mind to me is city of Ghent, where I was a couple of years ago. And it just felt so incredibly luxurious to walk around, like take the entire street, no cars parked everywhere, not those sounds. Whereas I wasn't particularly aware of that in the city I live in, cities I visited, it felt great to walk around there and really high quality in an interesting way. Exactly. I think it's a new sense of appreciation because in the 80s era and in the Instagram era and the Facebook FOMO era, we grew up with more is more, you know, Mm -hmm. and more exotic, more luxurious, more wilder trips, etc. A lot of people who become parents I don't have kids. And when I see my friends with kids, it looks like a nightmare to me. (laughs) It's just horrible. You have to give up your entire life for this crying and puking baby. But what people, what everybody is describing is this sense of tremendous happiness Mm -hmm. because you live in the small moments. You find happiness in the small, in the first steps, in the smile of your baby. So this experiencing happiness in the moment not on Instagram, not in sort of faraway trips, but being present, present and present, as we just talked mm-hmm. about with my wife. Yeah, I think we need to reappreciate that. That's a new form of happiness, which we need to start to promote in a way. And maybe we need to market this form of happiness <laughs> more over our prior, more hedonistic form of happiness. That's, that's beautiful. Thank you. And Jacqueline, if we... Take that moment where you realized that the impact of of climate change could be like an extinction level event. You read that book Mm. and you started thinking about that. Could you walk me through the thought process that you had at the time that led to founding Carbon Equity? Yes, I read that book. It was on my mind. And then, quite sadly, I was flying from Manila to Amsterdam. And I figured I I need to do something about my flight. I need to pay at least carbon offsets. That's the least thing I should do. So I paid 28 euros for my carbon offset. And then I wondered, where's the money going? 
So I looked it up and apparently went to solar panels in India. And then I had a very naive thought of like, why is this a donation? Uh, why am I not actually becoming a shareholder mm-hmm. of the solar panel? And so the vision that emerged in my mind at that point was what if at point of sale of every transaction that we do, you would invest in technology that creates a structural solution to climate change whilst creating millions, if not billions, of shareholders of the net zero economy in the process. This was the original vision, investing billions of millions and creating people who are long-term invested in, in multiple ways, invested in the net zero economy. And this thought I brought back to Netherlands when I moved back to Netherlands and I started pitching it to friends and started creating a bit of a group of founders who were passionate about this idea. And ultimately we pivoted a bit. Mm-hmm. And so now we're not a point of sale investment solution, but rather People can invest through carbon equity in climate, venture capital, and private equity funds. So we're still moving capital to climate tech. But this was sort of the original inspiration of, hey, we need to invest in technology. I don't think that's the only solution, Mm -hmm. but I think it's one element of the solution set. We need to rebuild all of the things that we have in our life in a carbon, in a fossil free way. And secondly, once people become And once people invest in, they become invested in. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I also strongly believe that once people are literally a shareholder, their whole relationship with it changes because now they're invested in the success of the net zero economy. And did you consider focusing on the big pockets of money in the world, like, say, pension funds or these kinds of institutions as opposed to consumers? Yeah, so the reason why we chose consumers, we have a unit called Professional Solutions where we work with big family offices and and foundations and and we're starting even to see some interest from pension funds. Mm -hmm. But our raison d'être is the consumer. And exactly because of this, we want to create shareholders of the net zero economy. We want to give people the opportunity to participate. We want to have more people who are benefiting from the upside of creating this net zero economy. And we're hoping that there will be some sort of a ripple effect because now you're a shareholder and that that might flow and ripple through the rest of your life. People who have a Tesla are more inclined to have solar panels. Mm. It becomes part of their identity. And identity is a big element in this game because a lot of people who became rich in the fossil fuel era or just generally spent their whole life focused on just accumulation of more money find it really hard to switch into like, acknowledging the seriousness or the urgency of climate change or that they have an individual responsibility in it because it has become, that's not their identity, Mm -hmm. right? So if you can open up that identity by getting people to invest in carbon equity, where we say, well, you don't need to be an environmentalist to invest in carbon equity. If you want to make money, invest in carbon equity, right? Because climate tech is a massive, massive value creation opportunity. Then maybe that opens that door in their identity to have a follow-on effects in the rest Super of the interesting. And, and yeah. could you walk me through the first year, say, of carbon equity and also your thought process quitting what you were doing, which is a really exciting role in itself? How did it go? What did you prioritize? What went well? What was really tough? How did that go? So I was a partner at Speed Capital which is indeed a really cool venture capital fund in the Netherlands. And we were investing in software as a service and marketplace companies. But when I read that book, The Sixth Extinction, which I read prior to joining Peak, by the way, I just realized 
it just didn't make any sense for me to spend any time on doing anything else and helping solve climate change. I mean, it's absolutely pointless to accumulate a ton of money in a, on a burning planet. So I really, I peak ultimately the essence of what I was doing was making return on investment for shareholders who are already very rich and supporting software founders who are building great efficiency tools, et cetera. And not to downplay the importance of that, but yeah, we have bigger fish to fry. <laughs> First, we need to have enable life on the planet or, or keep enabling life on the planet. And then uh, there are many other things that we can prioritize. So I decided I want to spend the rest of my life there. And I come from a background in finance. I've been a private equity investor, venture investor, and, and fintech investor. And hence, I felt that you know my weapon of choice to fight climate change is, is capital. Mm-hmm. So I started off with the question, how do we really move the needle on climate change with capital? And what we observed then was that trillions of dollars were moving into ESG stocks, but that trading ESG stocks per se has very limited impact. And so our thesis was, okay, I guess then we should be investing in private markets rather than public markets. Perhaps, Jacqueline, for everyone listening, can you quickly explain what the difference is? And maybe we should call it like primary and secondary money, because that is a huge difference in terms of... Yes. Impact. That's right. Yes. Yeah, that's a very important context to have. So a company is funded by money and a company can be listed on the stock exchange, in which case stocks of the company are traded. And these are typically secondary transactions, meaning you buy, I buy shares and I buy those shares from you. So there's no money that actually goes into the company, but we're basically trading stocks with each other between shareholders. And the impact of doing so is very limited, right? Because if I buy your shares from Tesla, you might make a return, but you know Tesla is not producing an, an extra car for it. Whereas in the non-listed markets, typically you're investing in primary capital. So if you invest 50,000 euros in a startup, they have 50,000 euros for additional marketing budget or to hire an extra engineer, for example. So the impact of capital is typically much more direct in private markets. And so companies that are not listed on stock exchange. And secondly, only 7% of all companies in the world are listed on the stock exchange. So 93% of companies are not listed on the stock exchange. So basically all young and less mature companies are all private. So you know, if you're just trading on the stocks, then you're not investing in these type of companies who actually desperately need the money because these are the companies bringing the innovation. So this is why we focus on private market investing, investing in companies that are not listed on the stock exchange rather than on ESG traded stocks. And so, and you decided yeah. on, on that focus and what next? What happened? What, yeah. were the, what were the key things that you started working on right away? The point was finding co-founders. What I've learned about finding, I've learned that I have a lot of ideas and I suck at execution. So I cannot build a company by myself. So what I have learned to do is I tell everybody about my ideas. When I have an idea, I tell a lot of people and then some ideas really stick and the best ideas people will ask how they can join them. So I started talking about this first version of carbon equity and one of my best friends, I've known her for 14 years. We figured out that we needed to start a company 14 years ago. We already said, okay, in the future, we should, we should really have a company and you will be CEO and I'll be CFO. And so, so that was the first person who said like, okay, let's do this. And then as we went along, I collected a whole bunch of co-founders. So the day that I left Peak, I already had a team with whom we started building the company. Mm -hmm. And then the first thing that you need to do as a new entrepreneur is to sell your product. 
And it's better to sell the product first, even before you have the product. So we basically were a fund of funds platform. So we talked to a whole bunch of funds, managed to get a small allocation in a fund, and then just started selling it. We just started mobilizing our network of people who might want to invest in this fund. We actually did much better than we expected. We raised three and a half million in I think four weeks or, oh, or wow. maybe even less. We sold out. So we actually gave, got to a point of ask, needing to ask people like, oh, can you maybe invest a little bit less? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because we don't have enough room, which is always a great position to have. And because we were talking to a lot of high net worth individuals, some of these people started asking us, hey, is it okay if I don't invest in the fund, but can I invest in your company? Initially, we said, oh, well, we weren't really thinking of raising capital just yet, but if you want to invest in our company, you know, it's something we can consider. Mm -hmm. And then we would go to an investor the next day and we'd be like, well, we weren't thinking of raising capital, but somebody else wants to invest in our company. Full stop. (laughs) And then the trick was not to ask people if they also wanted to invest. You just, you know, you sort of mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so then the next day, inevitably, and this happened, I think, 10 times in a row, people would call me and be like, did you say that somebody wanted to invest in your company? And is there a possibility of me joining? <laughs> <laughs> well, <thank you. laughs> yes. So before we knew it, we raised the 1.2 million seed round or pre-seed round. And we were rolling. Amazing. And um, yeah. you've now done a first close and raised 50 million euros. How did you do that? How did you do that? Because that's also a remarkable achievement in current markets, I think in record time as well. Could you talk a bit more about how you got to that milestone? Yeah, so Carbonicti raised approximately 150 million to date across multiple funds. And so Carbonicti is not a single fund. You should mm-hmm. rather see us as sort of like a tech platform marketplace where we offer curated funds. And people can select, do I want to invest in one fund or do I want to invest in all of your funds? And 90% of our customers invest in this. You call that a fund of funds or a portfolio fund where you invest in a basket of funds. And the key rationale for investing in a basket of funds is that you have more diversification. So with a single investment, you invest in 150 to 200 climate tech startups, scale-ups, big companies in Europe, in US, in agro-food, mobility, all of those verticals, et cetera. So basically, you're investing in the whole climate tech sector as a whole. Mm -hmm. So we offer those two types of uh, platforms or two types of products. And the way that we try to grow our business is, well, initially it was a lot of network based. So I had quite a network coming from my role at Peak. All of the co-founders are pretty experienced. We hired some people from Alp Invest, which is the biggest institutional fund of funds investor. I have like an awesome reputation. So that brought us a lot of credibility. So we started really tapping our network. We still rely a lot on our network. But then also our first customers became ambassadors. They started spreading the word. We've been building a brand by doing podcasts and being in the media and doing online webinars and offline events, et cetera. So basically the play is on one hand to build as strong a brand as possible so that people know us and they trust us. And the moment that you think, I want to invest in climate, in the climate theme, then you come to carbon equity. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, we have a team that's building a really awesome investment products. Honestly, I can say... 
if you want to invest in climate tech, we are the best game in town. <laughs> I'm not going to be shy about it. <laughs> and three, we have a tech team that is enabling an end-to-end, super efficient, digital, painless investment process. And then subsequently for the app really brings to life what you're investing in. So and we also really want to make it very visible. So for the app, you can see all here are all the companies that I invested in. This is what they're doing. This is their impact rationale. So we think that investing becomes so much more exciting when you really make the connection between this is what your capital is enabling. This is the impact that you're having. And you see all the progress that we're realizing. And then it becomes really exciting to think about this whole transition. Because it's so cool that we're building uh, zero carbon cement and uh, we have really high quality plant-based food and we're electrifying uh, steel production, etc. And like all of these awesome innovations, it's also very hopeful to see the amount of innovation that there is and the progress that we're making. And how does it work? Like if I want to get started today, what do I do? Yeah. Well, at the moment, unfortunately, you just said in the intro, the minimum is 10K. It was, we did a pilot last year from 10K, but at the moment it's 100K. That's a regulatory requirement. We will be lowering that requirement as soon as we have the full AFM license. So the objective is to first go to 25,000 euros and then to 10,000 euros. But at work, say, you go to the website, you check out the funds, you select the funds, then you get a ton of information. You get like a deck, which talks about what are you investing in in this fund and how does it work? Then you have a call with one of our team members. Always really good to be able to ask your questions, but also express your concerns or get, you know, get a good feel for who's actually behind carbon equity. And then uh, say, I want to invest X, and that can be anywhere between 100K and some people mm-hmm. investing 15 million. Yeah, everything is possible. And are there um, any uh, regulatory hoop? Do I need to be a qualified investor? Are there any other regulations that I need to keep in mind? Yeah, so in the Netherlands at the moment, you just need to be able to invest 100K. You need to be able to invest that in one go. So that's a pretty big hoop. <laughs> but, uh, if that's not a constraint, then there are no other constraints. And once we have the license, the full AFM license, everybody can invest at Carbon Equity, also not being a qualified investor. Internationally, you will have to be a qualified investor. But next year, the European Union is launching a new directive, the European Long-Term Investment Fund Directive, which specifically creates a European passport, a European license, for retail fund of funds. So then we will be able to start marketing a pan-European fund, which starts with minimums, uh, probably initially starting from 25,000 euros. And how does it work for funds? What are your requirements? And this is this is partially self-interested. I happen to, yeah. to work at a fund, so I'm super interested from that perspective as well. What needs to happen and what do funds need to show? So step one for us, we look at the landscape of 800 to 1,000 climate technology funds. That means the first requirement is that the fund is only dedicated or primarily dedicated towards investing in climate technology solutions. So we're not investing in, let's say, windmills or sort of like energy, entering transition infrastructure, it's all technology. Then we have a process which has three major steps. The first is climate diligence. So step one for us is really how do we select funds that are truly best in class and having climate impact? And we're uncompromising in this because this is our authenticity. So we want to avoid greenwashing and really make sure that we find select the funds that are most intentional. And secondly, best able to execute upon 
that impact intention. So we have developed a framework, which we call the Climate Diligence Framework. It's a list of uh, 50 questions. We score funds on every element. So for example, we will look at what's in your impact mandate, but are your incentives, are they tied to realizing that impact mandate? Yes or no? Who decides on impact? Is there a separate impact officer or is responsibility of everybody? We'll also have a really in-depth look at your portfolio and basically go for all of the companies, understand the impact rationale, also understand what is material to you, what is enough impact and what do we think of that? And so based on all of these criteria, we'll give you a score on a scale of one to five, and a fund needs to achieve a score of three out of five for them to progress in the process. Then we will look at the financial side of it. So we'll basically do a general diligence, op-invest style, where we'll basically look at who's on the team, what experience you have, what are your financial results in the past, what are your impact results, what are the key risks here, how are those risks mitigated, and then ultimately, after we feel fully comfortable, it goes to an external investment committee, which has external members, and they also need to sign off on this unanimously, both from impact and a returns point of view. And then we select that fund. And then we will invest anywhere between 10 to 15 million euros in these funds and open it up for small ticket investors. And how does it work for the individual companies? Because if I understand you correctly, you also offer direct investments in these companies. Are those? No. No. We don't. Yeah. So it's all fund of funds. And so basically the reason why we invest fund of funds is because rather than ourselves selecting all these companies, we rely on the world's best climate investment professionals. You literally have Al Gore who's doing the climate investing work for you. And that has a big benefit versus let's say angel investing because you have experts who are domain experts and investing experts who are selecting companies on your behalf. And secondly, you're not investing in a single company but in a portfolio of companies or in a fund of funds, in a portfolio of portfolios. So you're investing in, in, in dozens, hundreds of companies. So the risk level of losing your money is significantly less if you invest in a fund of funds. That makes um, a lot of sense. Yeah. I think also the growth of ETFs is like a testament of, of course. Uh, yes. consumer investors realizing that spreading your investments is a really good idea typically. Totally. So the fund of funds model is the private market's equivalent of the ETF. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So rather than betting on a single company or a single technology, you're betting on the direction of travel of the entire climate tech market. Yeah. Well, I'm betting that's a multi-billion dollar double digit growth market. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, Jacqueline, thank you so much for elaborating a bit more on the, the journey of carbon equity. I'd love to talk a little bit more about yourself as well. Like who is Jacqueline, the person after uh, behind all of this? You already talked a little bit about your drive when it comes to climate change specifically. Equally, I think you've been very active, like setting up organizations ever since you were in college. Could you tell me a little bit about that part of your drive? You have the, the urge to, to build and to organize, it seems, from the outside. Yeah, I do somehow. I have an urge to create. I feel it in my fingers. I, mm. <laughs> as a kid, I like to make clay puppets, female clay. I was pretty good at this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I really feel you started early. Like, <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> I, I feel a sense of creation in my hands. I have ideas all the time. On average, I think once a month, a business model idea falls from the sky with a name on it. And I collect all of these ideas and I share these ideas. And then I collect the teams around me to to start doing this. And the first 
company there was the Kleine Consultant, mm-hmm. which is now the Netherlands' largest student strategy consultant that emerged from, from one of these random ideas. Very cool. And how do you convert those ideas into actions, one? And also, how do you avoid all of these new ideas from derailing actually executing oh. on the ideas? Yeah, that's a super good idea. I mean, super good question because I suck at execution. So what I, if I don't have people who surround me who help me execute upon it, I will just go in this idea loop. And so I have millions of ideas in my idea graveyard. And I will always follow the cycle of like this moment of enlightenment in which I see the idea and I feel this rush of energy. And then I sort of go down the drain. Oh no, that already exists. Mm-hmm. Too much competition. It's not going to work until I get hit by the next idea. <laughs> I have a sense of alignment again and just go in this loop of like producing mm-hmm. nothing. So what I learned uh, to spin out of this loop is by telling people about my ideas. Mm-hmm. So for example, with the Kleine Consultants, I was working in a very small cinema, a film theater, the Uitkijk in Amsterdam. And my friends, they were film students and they wanted to start a company. And they asked me, uh, because I, I studied economics and I, I could work an Excel spreadsheet. So they were very impressed with my business skills. Mm-hmm. So they said, Jackie, can you sit with us and help us, advise us on how to start this company? So I sat with all six and we spent two hours. And after two hours, we had a solution that they've been looking for for months. And I walked out the door that evening and distinctly, I remember whilst unlocking my bike under the light of the street lamp, uh, mm-hmm. the whole idea for the clinical Consultant fell from the sky with the name of students who would help startups, small companies who need strategic advice, but can't afford to hire McKinsey. And then McKinsey would coach those students and customers with free or affordable strategic advice. Anyway, the next day I met a random friend who I knew from Isaac, another student organization. And we were talking about consulting, what to do after Isaac. And I said, well, why don't you become my co-founder of the Kleine Consultant? Mm -hmm. And then a month later, I had moved on, I don't know, three business plans further. And Marika came back to me and she was like, Jackie, how about the Kleine Consultant? Are we doing this? And I said, oh, yeah, let's do it. And and that's when we only started executing. So if not for her, it would have never happened. And probably the same with every other idea I ever had. So I try to find people who are good executors and pull me out of the idea loop. Great. And that, and that has yielded amazing results to date. So it's great that you've sort of found the, the model to you know, yes. use your own fuel and the ideas and then get to, uh, to action. And yes. then when you started working on, and you could take any example that works best, but how do you avoid sort of all the new ideas, you know, derailing, derailing, derailing yes. you and sort of uh, taking focus away from making that very idea that you're working on at the moment a success? It's really hard. I'll admit that straight up. The first year of carbon equity, I was constantly second guessing myself. Hmm. I was constantly thinking, oh shit, did we make the, is, does this make sense? Why do we take this route? Should I have taken a different route? Here are 10 other ideas that we could be working on. And I remember in the first, in the first months, year, I would constantly have new ideas for my co-founders like, oh, shouldn't we do this? And I think I pitched Patalpal. <laughs> <laughs> which What's was that? an idea. The Vital Power sort of like an ATM on a, like a pin, pin automat mm-hmm. on a stick mm-hmm. for uh, people, for example, uh, street artists, but also uh-huh. um, homeless like, people, 
they all those people were previously collecting cash. They can't uh, collect cash anymore. Like mobile people... point of sale, essentially. Exactly. Yeah, yeah the PayPal pound is one of my ideas. But there are many ideas that cross my mind that try that try to derail carbon equity. Until I got to the point where I started to see, oh yeah, what we're doing makes a lot of sense. But also, I have for myself set sort of a timeline of I want to spend the next 30 years building companies that help solve climate change, which I divide into sort of three phases of 10 years. And so my hope is to spend three times 10 years building companies. And that also gives me a little bit of the patience to say, okay, well, I'm on this road. What I'm currently doing makes a ton of sense. It will take 10 years to really become a really impactful and sufficiently large company. But I also have the patience for other ideas or desires or dreams that I have to park that for the next of that 30-year stretch. So I think that gives me patience. You can tell the ideas that their time will come. They will come, yeah. yes. Yes. And uh, Jacqueline, what I, what I find super interesting as well is that you spent so much time in, time in the Philippines, more than five years. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about what that was like, what you learned there also very much uh, when it comes to Philippine culture, whether it changed you? What was that like as an overall experience for you? It was fantastic. Philippine culture, the Philippine Tourism Board had a slogan which said, it's more fun in the Philippines. And I would say there's nothing been more true mm -hmm. ever than that statement. It is more fun in the Philippines. Honestly, if you want to have fun, go there. It is such a happy place despite all of the challenges that people deal with. But people sing, they laugh, they dance. Working is like being part of a family. It is a hell of a lot of fun. So I had a really great time. I think for me, Philippines shaped me in, in multiple ways. I learned a lot. I got to hire people, like dozens of people, and it was really an education in, in finding out what talent looks like and, mm -hmm. and, and whatnot. But I think the Philippines more broadly shaped me in some understanding of the world. The Philippines, 110 million people, 20 million people in Manila. I think we spoke about this earlier, but you can travel through the city at four to six kilometers an hour. It's completely gridlock. You cannot fit another car in that city. And then the moment that people have a little bit more wealth, which the business process outsourcing industry has increased salaries, and you have some of the biggest and most astounding malls in the world in the Philippines, in a country that is super poor. And the first priority is for people to fly or to buy an air conditioning, or to buy another car. And that's all very understandable. And it helped me understand that, one, people are entitled to these lifestyles, but secondly, the world cannot accommodate this by any means. I checked my own carbon footprint the other day, and I consume 3.2 earths. I barely eat any meat, but I do fly to the Philippines every year, so I put in 40 hours of flights. So I already personally consume 3.2 earths a year. So my, that was really where my insight came of like, okay, we really need to rebuild everything that we have in a fossil free, carbon neutral way so that we can enable this. Yeah. Personal level, Jacqueline, that sounds yeah. insane. So there's this carbon footprint calculator, mm -hmm. which calculates if everybody in the world had your lifestyle, how uh, many okay. Earths would you okay. need? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's not that I'm consuming 3.3 Earths, fortunately. That'd be, that'd be aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> I buy all of Amazon every day. <laughs> but God, have you lived? <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> not exactly. But no, even with my pretty modest lifestyle, where we 
never have the heater and more than 17 degrees. I bike everything. Mm -hmm. uh, the only thing is I fly occasionally because my wife is from the other side of the planet. So we need to rebuild uh, the planet. And one final insight was in the Philippines, when people retire, they have one month of pension income, one month for the rest of their life. So basically people have no pension. And if you don't invest, you will never, your whole life, you are working for money. Mm -hmm. When you invest, money works for you. And so that also brought me the insight that you can only change the spiral of prosperity by getting people to invest and become shareholders rather than employees. That brings me to the ventures you worked on in the Philippines. I'm, I'm mm. guessing that that was your first experience with leadership, like outside of a student environment and moving from being an investor to leading a large team. And then also yeah. in the Philippines, what did you, how was that? And what did you learn from that? Yeah, that was not always very successful. <laughs> uh, it was indeed exactly as you say, my first leadership experience abroad. I really needed to learn the language. I mean, they speak English, but a yes is very different from a yes in Asia than it is in Europe. And people communicate in a much more indirect, soft way. Mm -hmm. So I remember I had this uh, training session with our sales team and we were talking about how to prepare for meetings. And there was this guy called Ryan and I said, Ryan, you're going to go visit this customer in a bit. Uh, what do you know about them? And he said, uh, well, actually, uh, the meeting is already in 15 minutes. Like, Ryan, what are you doing? I mean, this is pre-Zoom, right? So he still needed to cross the entire town and travel an hour, et cetera. And, and I, I was like, so what on earth are you doing in this training? And he, and he just felt he had to be there because I had said he had to be there. And I sort of had a micro explosion. <laughs> what are you thinking? <laughs> and and the next day he quit his job. Oh, I no. had embarrassed him in front of the group. And that was really not done. So implicit communication, honor, trust, all super important elements to build. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lot about coming from the Netherlands, we're a bit of a bulldozer. You know, we just say it as it is. We feel entitled to be present. We take up a lot of space compared to Asians. So I learned to be aware and cognizant of my own presence and how overwhelming that presence can be. That's one of the things I learned, to make myself a little bit smaller. I'm still not very good at that, but to make myself a little bit smaller so that can be literally more room for other people. Mm -hmm. And the second thing I learned was that you first need to build trust before anything else. You cannot get anything done in a company if people don't fully trust you at a personal level. And mm -hmm. that means... You need to spend much more time talking to people, small talk, going out for coffees, going out for drinks, etc. Really connecting with people at a personal level before you get anything done professionally. Did you take that learning back to Europe as well? Yes. Do you think it applies here as it applies in the Philippines? Maybe slightly less, but I would say fundamentally, corporate relationships, working in a company, ultimately it's all human business. So the core of human relationships is trust. Again, I'm not, I'm not great at, I'm, I really, I'm not good at small talk, right? So I find it hard to be updated with what's happening in people's lives. And I'm shy asking people. And I know that these things are very important. And so I try to definitely apply that in every next company to become a better leader. I think it's a lifelong learning journey. You will never be great 
and you should continue to question yourself all the time of like what how can i be better that's beautiful thanks Jacqueline. and as we wrap up is there anything you would like to say to the audience in terms of maybe carbon equity in terms of everything you've read or listened to if people want to know more about climate change anything else that mm. comes to mind that you'd like to to leave as a last recommendation yeah Okay, so a few books and podcasts I recommend. So for books, uh, My Journey Got Started with the Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert. Uh, they're really great books. It's really fascinating. And it's not it's more fascinating than depressing. <laughs> so <laughs> it can be hard to read these books. Then in terms of podcasts, a really good podcast is The Great Simplification. And there's a five-part series called Ben Not Break, if you want to understand the systems change level problem of climate change that is the most mind-blowing thing you can listen to. Then there are some really good newsletters on climate technology. The Climate Tech VC newsletter is really good. Bloomberg Green is pretty good. If you want to be investing, put your money behind climate tech, then obviously check out Carbon Equity. And then my, my ask to people is... I'm a pragmatist, maybe occasion to my detriment, but I think we, my main ask is not necessarily to go on a crash course diet of trying to live a totally carbon-free neutral lifestyle, but to make more conscious choices. I recently spoke to this guy and uh, I asked him, you know, how much do you, how concerned are you about climate change? And this is really sort of like a financial investor kind of profile, somebody who works in private equity. And, and he said, well, on a scale of one to 10, I would score that a three. So not very concerned. And I asked him why. And he said, well, because it doesn't really matter what I do, you know, whether I recycle or whether I fly or not, you know, it's all a drop in the ocean. It's really not going to matter at all. And my first, my individual actions, I will sacrifice, but it doesn't have any sort of impact on the broader scheme. And this is where I fundamentally disagree. Because if we all think that, we're in the lose-lose square of the prisoner's dilemma. And we will for sure blow up the planet. So I really am trying to appeal to a sense of individual responsibility that, yes, your actions matter. It matters how you consume, how you travel, how you vote. Very important. Voting and influencing other people. Super important. And it does matter. And this is a time to take a level of individual responsibility which doesn't mean cutting yourself off all earth resources and living off the grid you know, in a hut in the, in the dunes or something. But we can make better choices. Thank you, Jacqueline, for joining us. Thank you so much for being inspiring for your leadership with Carbon Equity and for your openness during this podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you.